I'm going to start with a footnote this morning, given the song that we just sang about dancing as the bridegroom of Christ, and uh, as, the, as the bride of Christ, with Jesus as our bridegroom. And uh, I don't know how many of you have seen that recent story about the uh, Gnostic uh, piece of information that came out declaring that Jesus had a wife. Two thoughts on that. One, don't ever believe a Gnostic. So just just as a general rule of life, particularly one that's writing three or four hundred years after Jesus, that's just a hint. uh, we don't even know what the scrap was. It could have been uh, a sermon notes, which is, uh, I, I hope that at 400 years after my death, my sermon notes will not survive. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, Jesus does have a wife, and we are it. And uh, so we should never be shocked when we hear that kind of language, because it's all throughout the New Testament. Uh, so I don't want to baptize the Gnostics as if they were inspired, but sometimes even a Gnostic has something right. <laughs> so just hold that thought. That, the song just remind me of that. Um, I want to talk about the heart of the matter this morning. What does it mean to have faith? And as I thought about, the, uh, about that subject, I, I have a confession to make. Uh, now that I'm a bishop and I'm traveling a lot and generally I have no idea where I'm going... Uh, I have a great dependence on my GPS. Uh, There are just too many places to go. I couldn't possibly carry the maps around. And in any case, you can't read a map while you're driving. Uh, It was the original distracted driving was trying to do that. Um, So generally, I trust my GPS, and I go go where I'm told. Um, And it almost always works. Almost always. Marsh and I were driving around New England this summer on vacation. We had my GPS with me, and we were going to go out to dinner, and, and it took us on this back road through the, uh, street, uh, the streets of New, New England. And uh, we were doing just fine, and then all of a sudden, our road just stopped, and there was a stone wall across it. Uh, it was the border, a border of a property, and then on the other side of the stone wall, the road continued, <laughs> which did us no good at all. We had to completely backtrack. Uh, but generally, generally, it gets, us, it gets me to the right place. And I have to trust it. Faith is trusting in information or trusting in a person who's giving you information and acting accordingly. So it's a little strong to say I have faith in my GPS, but in a sense, I'm trusting its information and I'm acting Accordingly, well aware that it's not uh, infallible. Some of you who are uh, techies have been tracking uh, the new Apple Maps uh, application on the new iPhone or iPad uh, or anything you've downloaded it to and discovered that it doesn't work very well, if you've been tracking the story, unlike the Google Maps that were on it beforehand. And it may be an irrecoverable problem for Apple. It necessitated an apology from Tim Cook, the president of Apple, which is kind of funny, at least to me, because there's a certain irony in the fact that Apple has just won a lawsuit against Samsung phones for using the Google operating system. And now they're saying, but please, on your iPhone, go to Google for your maps. (laughs) Which he did in his his, uh, 
in his apology. Um, I mean, they were pretty bad. There was an, uh, screenshots that are posted all over the internet. For example, one that has a museum located underneath a river. <laughs> Another map service seems to deny the existence of the town Stratford-on-Avon, or upon Avon, which is fairly famous as a town in England. <laughs> but there are also serious problems. I mean, you're not likely to follow uh, the map into the river to get to the museum. But there, it can also be a life and death issue. One uh, part of Apple Maps identifies a working farm in a residential area of suburban Dublin as an airport which would be a potential hazard, both for the pilots and, I guess, the sheep, depending on how you look at it. Information matters, and the source of the information matters. Faith is trusting that God, who has revealed himself, can be trusted to lead us to the right end. Faith is the confidence that what we've been promised, what we hope for, will be realized. And so you see in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is being sure of what we hope and uh, hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is all in your uh, booklet. Now it's page 25. I think I got it right this time. Um, this is what the ancients were commended for. In other words, many others have walked the map and found the destination. They've listened to the promises of God, and they're commended to follow along. They're commended for trusting not just the map, not just God's directions, but the map maker, God himself. Now, to continue the analogy and perhaps move it up a level, it's better to think of the scriptures and God's purposes for us as a military map. The commander maps out the route for us to follow. It, it can lead to safety or danger, depending on what's going on in that particular time of the warfare. But you follow the commander's map. We are people under orders. We are in the kingdom of God, and we are, if you will, citizen soldiers and servants. We're not people who are out sightseeing, getting to where we want to go, and consulting God's map for our purposes. Now, in the midst of it, we're related to a world of suffering. And the problem is with that many of us, we, when we became Christians, assumed that if God was going to be our father, we were now immunized to suffering. That was certainly true for, for me as a new Christian. We disregard what Jesus said in John 16. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, when I used to read that, I assumed that he was referring solely to persecution. And there's no doubt that persecution was in mind, uh, in, in part of what he was, it was partially in mind when he said that we're going to have trouble. And I've, we've certainly seen some persecution. But it's a more general term. 
trouble, hardship, difficulty. We're in a world that's difficult, very hard. And I want to tackle three questions as we consider that, questions that we'll see um, answers to in Hebrews chapter 11. First of all, what is the life of faith, the plan A, really like in a plan B world, in a fallen world? Secondly, what should we remember? And finally, what is one purpose of suffering? What is the life of faith, the plan A, really like in a plan B world? What should we remember along the way? And finally, what is one purpose of suffering? Well, what is the life of faith really like in a plan B world? Hebrews is brutally honest about possible outcomes in our life. Now, why? Why does the writer of Hebrews get to be so graphic in what you can face as a faithful follower of God? Tim Keller uses a wonderful analogy that I, I'm, I've been mulling over. He said that when he had loved ones in the hospital, they now have a routine that after the surgery of a loved one, they will send out a nurse to explain to you what the person will look like as you head into ICU to see them. And it's pretty graphic most of the time. You know, they're going to have tubes in them. They're going to be pale. They're gonna, it may not look like they've got any strength. Uh, they may not be able to speak. And he said, you know, they, they lay it on pretty thick. And he said, when you then go in, having been prepared, you have one of two reactions. One is, yep, just what they said. This, it looks pretty bad. But you're not shaken by it because you've just been prepared for it. On the other hand, you go in and go, not so bad. They're doing better than what I was expecting. Keller's suggestion is that in this passage in Hebrews, what the writer is doing is saying, let me tell you how bad things can get. So that when they happen to us, we don't go, oh my gosh, what happened? Something must be wrong. And he gives a list of faith, the Hebrews writer gives a list of faith walking, uh, of people who've been living by faith all through Hebrews 11, and we're going to pick it up toward the end of the chapter, but I strongly encourage you to go back and study all of the stories there. In a sense, they fill out the timeline. But verse 32, he goes, and what more shall I say? He's been talking with all these examples. I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Faith can lead to wonderful success, and this is a list of successes, of victories, of glorious miracles. Please notice, however, that all of these successes are in the midst of adversity. They conquered kingdoms because they were at war. Think of Gideon and the Midianites uh, and that wonderful victory, or Samson and David uh, versus the Philistines. Wonderful victories. They had administered justice. Think of Samuel as judge, or David acting as king in the capacity of judge. Shut the mouths of lions. Actually, it's, we, we immediately think of the Daniel story, and that's probably the most direct reference. 
But it's also worth remembering that David was successful against lions, and uh, so was Samson. But you know, when you're facing a lion, it's not a walk in the park. (laughs) And so even in the successes, the writer is saying, it's going to be hard. You're going to face some incredibly difficult things. Quench the fury of the flames, verse 34. Well, certainly a reference to Daniel's friends. And then generally, escape the edge of the sword. You can think of all the times that David escaped. Uh, Weakness being turned to strength. Uh, One example, of course, would be Samson at the end of his life, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Victories, victories, but victories in the midst of warfare. One of our disadvantages as American Christians is that most of us have never been in an actual war zone where things are actually exploding. I think today of the Syrian people caught in the middle of a war zone where just a year ago things were peaceful. Can you imagine your city being shelled? wondering if you're going to be alive the next day. You're wondering who you're going to lose that's close to you. As Marcia said, we are in warfare, and most of us, if we're honest, particularly as American Christians, are trying to vacation in the middle of a war. We're running for cover much of the time. But someone can be faithful and still face incredible suffering. Yes, there are victories. He lists the victories first. But then there are things that happen that look nothing like victory, nothing like success. The bridge verse is interesting, verse 35. It's in the victory category. Women receive back their dead, raised to life again. But it's still tragic. Because they first died. It's probably a reference to uh, the stories of Elijah and then Elisha raising dead boys back to life. But put yourself into the story uh, in 1 Kings 17 as the mother of the boy. Listen to the language of this mother who eventually receives her son back, but she doesn't know that's coming. Listen to this language. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house, the house that has been available to Elijah, became ill. He, he grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? I, I suspect Jonathan can relate to this verse. There are days when things go wrong in a church and you are it in terms of getting blamed even if you had nothing to do with it. And I'm sure that happens in your lives as well. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from his, her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him out on his bed. Listen to what he cries out. Marcia talked about crying out. Then he cried out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Tragic situation. 
And that's why I call it a bridge verse, because it's tragedy. Yes, there's victory at the end. The, the boys are raised back to life. But as they live through the story, I don't think they told it with a big smile on their face. They didn't know how it was going to work out. Not all children are resurrected. The next verse is almost certainly a reference to something that takes place in 2 Maccabees. Maccabees and, and the Apocrypha covers the period of, of Judaism that we were talking about. And, and, and honestly, I and we as Christians do not know the Apocrypha very well, but we need to. Not because it's inspired at the same level of the scriptures, but because it tells the bridge history between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in many cases, it's presupposed in the New Testament that the people know that history. And the Apocrypha is actually, it's referenced here, it's actually quoted from elsewhere in the New Testament. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. The others here probably means not just other people, but he's just talked about women receiving their uh, dead back to life. It probably means other women. And there's probably a particular story in mind from uh, 2 Maccabees uh, 7. Let me just read it to you. Uh, It's a story of seven sons of a Jewish mother who under uh, tyranny, under uh, Antiochus, Antiochus, uh, are put to death before her eyes. And then she dies. Why? Because he's asking them to eat pork, to deny their faith, and eat pig. And they refused to do it. And it says this, The mother was especially admirable and worthy of honorable memory. Although she saw her seven sons perish within a single day, she bore it with good courage because of her hope in the Lord. She encouraged each of them in the language of their ancestors. Filled with the noble spirit, she reinforced her woman's reasoning with a man's courage, interesting phrase, and said to them, I do not know how you came into being in my womb. It was not I who gave you life and breath, nor I who set in order the elements within each of you. Therefore, the creator of the world, who shaped the beginning of humankind and devised the origin of all things, will in his mercy give life and breath back to you again, since you now forget yourself, yourselves for the sake of his laws." You're willing to give up your life in order to be faithful to God. And she believes in the resurrection. The idea of the resurrection was well in place by the time Jesus comes and declares himself to be the resurrection and life. And it's precisely because of stories like this that it had become part of many Jewish uh, identities. Now, obviously, the Sadducees didn't go along with it, but the Pharisees did. They believed in a resurrection. And I could go into the story, but it's kind of gruesome. I mean, they're not just killed. They're first amputated and then roasted alive, what's left, for each of her sons. And each one makes a declaration of their faith. 
things can get hard. What is the life of faith, the plan A really like in a plan B world? Well, if we're faithful in the midst, sometimes things are victorious and successful, other times tragic. Well, what should we remember in the midst of this kind of life? Well, one way to grow in faith is to do what the author of Hebrews is uh, advocating, which is to remember the great victories and the great faithfulness in the midst of tragedies of those who've gone before. Remembering the great victories. There's an old joke about uh, Jewish holidays, a summary of Jewish holidays. Perhaps you've heard it before. Uh, Every Jewish holiday is based on this. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. But there's something right in celebrating what God has done in the past and, and rejoicing in it. Think about the victories in your life. Two come to my mind in our lives. Uh, one has to do with our uh, granddaughter, Miriam, uh, now three years old. But while she was in the womb, they detected a major heart problem, uh, a life-threatening heart problem. And so... Everything was geared up so that within a a few days of her birth, she would have major heart surgery. You could see it in the sonogram. It was crystally clear. And lots of us started praying. Uh, And I honestly, I think my prayer was, yes, God, please heal her. But, you know, there's there's also a part of us that protects ourselves. Even if, you know, if it has to be through surgery, so be it. But please heal my granddaughter. I mean, what else... Would we pray? People wrestle with, should we pray for healing? I have a very simple answer. First of all, the scriptures encourage it. But secondly, not to pray for it is dishonest. It's what we want. God may not give it to us, but to pretend that we don't care is, is fooling no one. So we are praying for her healing. She's born. They text her heart again, having just seen it a few days before, and the heart is completely healed. It was a great victory of the Lord. Just a great victory of the Lord. And I also think of what our parish went through, uh, Redeemer, as we had to leave behind the the buildings we paid for and and poured our lives into. And and I have to say, the place uh, where God had done great things. On our, our way out on the last Sunday... Um, my assistant had an idea, and it was one of those ideas that first sounded kind of schmaltzy. I, I, uh, you can tell how much Marsha and I love schmaltzy things by, by, the, by the teabag story. Um, but he said, what if we just got rocks and laid them in a pile of remembrance for all the things the Lord has done in this place on our way out the door? And so... It's kind of hard to argue with a biblical example. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, I, sure, well, why not? But, you know, it was very powerful because people think, I got married here. My child was baptized here. My husband was buried here. I came to Christ here. 
And then they held that stone and remembered that thing and then put it down as a marker on the way out the door. And then we headed off to a warehouse. The neat part of that story is that we were invited to worship with a Messianic congregation that was worshiping in that warehouse. It was a Messianic congregation that we had hosted years before. But people trusted God. We say all the time that the church is the people, not the building. There's a real quick way to test that. Take away the building. <laughs> and that's what happened. And we discovered at a deeper level, yeah, it really is the people. So God did great things. And you celebrate those victories. And to forget them is, is to dishonor God. But there are excruciating moments, too. Marsha was just sharing uh, with some of you about a, a foster baby that we were given to foster from birth till adoption. That was the way it was done in Virginia many years ago now. It may still be the case. And so that there's a window for the birth mother to reconsider whether she wants that baby adopted. So you don't hand it immediately to the adoptive parents. You let it be in foster care. And, and because we're pro-life, we feel strongly that if you're for adoption, you've got to make those things possible. So we took in this little boy. He had major problems, and I won't go into the whole story, but at the end of six months, uh, uh, which was five months longer than we were expecting to have him, uh, we had completely bonded with the child, completely. And they even offered him to us because they couldn't find parents, and it was clear from the Lord we wanted him. We loved him. He was ours. He was saying dada and mama. It was crystally clear that to us emotionally that we should keep him. But God just said no. And it's a long story I won't go into. But then we had to give him up. So I don't want to say that we've lost a child in this comparison to those of you who've had children you've lost. That's a totally different experience. But, we, but I, that was a painful moment. There was victory in it too. But on our end it was loss. And as Marsha mentioned, last year we saw her uh, sister die of brain cancer. That was hard. The amazing thing there is that having been close to the gospel her, her whole life, she gave her life to Christ a, year, a week before she died. Yeah, amen. But still, it's hard. So the primary thing to remember is that we are in a great contest and therefore we should focus on Christ who's gone before us and look at what Christ has done. And so that's the theme of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and, and it's interesting, I've been studying this, I usually think of it as a great cloud of witnesses is we're on the track, we're running the race, and the, and the other witnesses are in the stands cheering us on, the, the ones who've gone before. And that may be what's happening, and if that's the way Jonathan's preached it, that is what happens. <laughs> But it's actually more likely that what he means is that you're running in a pack of great witnesses. They're on your right and your left. Or you're falling behind them. 
Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's really interesting. What, what, what the writer seems to be saying is, you look at Jesus, he was looking ahead to the joy set before him despite what he was about to go through on the cross. His goal line, his finish line, was being back with the Father at the throne of God. You watch him and follow accordingly. That's your goal line. That's where we're headed. Watch Jesus. And the more we look at Jesus' suffering and identify with it, the more endurance we will have in our race. Think about it. He received ridicule when he should have been worshipped. He had constant questioning. He was constantly questioned when he should have been asking all the questions. He was betrayed when he deserved allegiance. He had physical pain when he had healed so many of physical pain. And then he faced death when he was the life of the world. The way, the truth, and the life. So what is the life of faith, the plan A, really like in a plan B world? Well, victories and defeats, resurrections and better resurrections. Did you catch that phrase, waiting for a better resurrection? See, in the first case, the women's sons were raised by the prophets back to life, just like Lazarus was, but we're going to face dead, death again. In the, in the latter case, particularly this, the mother who's watching her sons die, they were looking for the better resurrection, the permanent resurrection, to a life that never ends. There are victories and defeats, there are resurrections, and the better resurrection. What should we remember? We should remember the miracles God has done and the faithful who have gone, gone before us, but in some sense still surround us. And especially we should remember Jesus faithfully dying for us. Now what is one purpose of suffering? The writer goes on to give the analogy of discipline by a loving father. Now let me tell you about discipline. One of the most painful things for me as a grandfather is to watch my grandchildren disciplined. I go over to my children's house and my grandson has done something out of line and they have to put him in time out. He's doing better now. But there was a season there where he just melted down. Uh, in timeout, you may as well have just strapped him to something. I mean, he he was miserable, and he made it very clear that he was miserable. <laughs> and I discovered, as a grandparent, that I wanted him out of timeout much faster than his parents were willing to let him out of timeout. Why? 
Because as a grandfather, my concern is that my grandson be happy all the time, especially with me. (laughs) But his parents' concern is that he become good. They wanted to train him in goodness. The coach who does not push his team does not want them to win enough. The drill drill sergeant who does not care for his soldiers goes easy in basic training. The reason is that there's a temptation to hate those who rebuke us, correct us, or discipline us. We don't like it. We are all three-year-olds at heart when it comes to discipline. And the writer has to say, think about discipline. Have you forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. He's pointing back to Proverbs. What are God's goals in allowing hardship in our life? Well, one goal, one reason for suffering, one purpose is to endure hardship as discipline so that we will have real life. Verse 9, how much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Well, what does it mean to live? What does it mean to have a full life? What, it means, what does it mean to have a disciplined life, receiving the discipline of God? Verse 10 says, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us, please note, for our good. Not for our happiness, although there is a happiness as our character changes. But he disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share in his holiness. Going back to what Marcia said, God's purpose is to display his character in us. To look like him, to be set apart for him. To reflect his mercy, his kindness, his patience, his love. Now the problem is that holiness and goodness are not our primary goals in life, at least not in the flesh. That's the problem. Think of college essays, you know, and they ask you what you want to be or become. I, I bet you that very few colleges say, I am trying to learn goodness. I am aiming at holiness. But the fact that those are not our goals is an explanation of why life is so hard for us. C.S. Lewis wrote this in God in the Dock. If you think of this world as a place intended simply for our happiness, you will find it quite intolerable. Think of it as a place of training and correction, and it's not so bad. Verse 11 says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. I love the honesty of that. Later on, which is to say, not immediately, 
however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Another way to say it is, through hardship, God is planting seeds in us that if we let them mature, will change our character. The heart of our sinful nature is narcissism. The world is supposed to be our oyster. Things and people need to work out to our advantage. And suffering is a direct assault on that premise. I remember serving at Redeemer about three or four years in, and things had been tough. And going back to what Marcia was saying earlier, some of the things that were tough were things I had made tough. And some of it were just the fact that I was not yet completely accepted by the people and things weren't going smoothly. And somewhere in the midst of all that, God showed me that the parish was his crucible for my refining. See, I thought I was there for their refining. And then I realized God could have sent somebody else to them. But all the things that I was going through was for my refining. It changed the way I looked at ministry. It changed the way I looked at opposition or struggle. The first question I began to ask myself, I'm still learning, is what are you trying to tell me? What in me is getting hooked here? What part of my flesh is fighting back here? The most merciful thing God does for any of us is to conform us to the image of his son. Think about that. The most merciful thing God can do for any of us, the best thing, the very best thing, is to conform us to the image of his son. And suffering is one of his primary chisels. Now, that's only one purpose for suffering, and it's not the only purpose. There are other purposes for suffering, suffering too. One is a redemptive purpose. So I'm adding this in. I said there's only one. I wanted to look at one primary one, and the primary one is sanctification, making us holy. But there's a, there is a redemptive one, and I just want to close with that. Think about this. If suffering were just for sanctification, if suffering were just to make us look like Jesus, well, Jesus didn't need to be made to look like Jesus. He didn't need to be conformed to his own image. He was already perfect. So the suffering he went through is not sanctification, but it was redemptive. And sometimes we suffer for the sake of others. We tend to measure everything by what is good for our own individual selves, and we forget that that's not our only purpose being here. Think of people who've suffered for the sake of others. And I'll just name a few that come to my mind. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer falls into that category, and if you haven't read Eric Metaxas' um, biography of Bonhoeffer, I strongly recommend it. Uh, I will say what I was saying to someone earlier. Uh, 
treat the early chapters of that book like you might treat the genealogies and and, uh, the scriptures. Uh, Some of you will find those early childhood stuff interesting, and and others will get bogged down there. If if you're getting bogged down, just go past it and jump into about the time he's in seminary and move on from there. Uh, It's sort of a slow start. It's a fabulous book. But he was willing to suffer for the sake of others. He put his life on the line to get rid of uh, Hitler and was killed as a result. I think of four men, excuse me, five men. Uh, we, we know the one of, name of one of them. Ed McCall, Roger Uderian, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, and Jim Elliott. They were all killed by the Aka Indians as they tried to reach out with the gospel. Their suffering, their death, had a redemptive purpose. Not only did their wives go back in and reach those Indians with the, for the gospel, which is still astonishing to me, But their deaths catalyzed five decades of missionary service around the world. It was redemptive. Some of you know the name Johnny Erickson Tata. Girl uh, as a teenager uh, who in a diving accident in the Chesapeake Bay became a quadriplegic. And, And her story, she wrote a biography uh, and some follow-up, and she has now uh, got this wonderful organization it's called Johnny's Friends, uh, dealing with uh, people with disabilities. It's an absolutely fabulous organization. And we think of her as the hero of the story, and she is. And what God has done redemptively to use her to reach out to families, and especially Christian families with disabled children, is remarkable. But there's another hero in the story. Her husband, Kentada, who married her despite her disability and has been caring for her for over 30 years. And he talks about, uh, in several places, uh, the routine that they go through every day as he gets her out of bed and gets her ready. It's a two-hour routine to get her ready to get in the wheelchair and go wherever they need to go. She's often speaking. And then he says at the end of every day, there's another two hours to undo everything we did in the morning to get her back to bed. But listen to his words. Again, redemptive suffering. He's, he, he, he's talking about how hard it is and how it just takes everything out of you and how you have to rely on Jesus. And then he says, but perhaps that's the secret to good caregiving, a constant Awareness of one's desperate need of Jesus Christ and a steady reliance on him day in and day out, like breathing in and breathing out. The fact is that when I'm serving Johnny, I'm serving Christ. For Colossians 3.23 reminds every caregiver, no matter how difficult or demanding the routines, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. When my focus is on Jesus Christ, caregiving may feel extremely tiring. But the work doesn't have to be tiresome. 
it's for him. What does Ken Tata know about suffering? He knows it can be redemptive. That you can suffer for Christ's sake while laying down your life for others. Suffering can be from life in a war zone. Suffering can train us, but suffering can also be for others' sake. Having said all that, suffering is still a mystery. Job's friends were commended for their silence in the face of their friend's pain and then reprimanded for saying too much later in trying to explain his suffering. And therefore, I must end before I make a similar mistake. <laughs> Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would change our heart's goal from having things our way for having comfortable lives to being conformed into the image of your Son. We ask that we would see your purposes in suffering, the training purposes, the disciplinary purposes, the redemptive purposes, and other purposes as you may show us. But most of all, we lift ourselves to you, trusting that your purposes for us are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.